Welcome to the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and I'll be taking you on a journey to the world of martial arts and introduce listeners to some of the most aspiring and knowledgeable practitioners from around the world. Whether you're a seasoned martial artist or a curious beginner, or just enjoy hearing a great story, the Mind Sensei Podcast Down Under has something for everyone. So tune in, sit back, and let us take you on a journey through the world in martial arts. Welcome, honoured listeners, to Season 2 of another riveting episode of the Mind Sensei Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Taz, and today, ladies and gentlemen, martial arts enthusiasts and seekers of wisdom, welcome to a very special edition of the Mind Sensei Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to introduce our esteemed guest, a living legend, Grandmaster Joe Rubello, also officially known as Kempo Joe. With an incredible martial arts journey spanning over 50 years, Grandmaster Rebella has not only mastered, but excelled in 24 martial art disciplines, ranging from Chinese, Okinawan, Japanese, Korean, Filipino to American martial arts. He holds the title of 10th degree black belt judan in various styles, including Kempo, Nindo, Kobujitsu, Shao Choi Hung, Kung Fu, and Ed Parker's American Kempo. A walking encyclopedia of martial arts, Grandmaster Rebello is not only seasoned instructor, He's also a martial arts historian, often sought after for his wealth of knowledge. His contributions have earned him the recognition in the form of inductions into five halls of fame as a historian. As a senior instructor at Rebello's Kempo Karate, Grandmaster Rebello has dedicated 44 years of teaching, leaving an indelible mark on the southeastern Massachusetts area. He has been a self defense instructor for the New Bedford Auxiliary Police and the New Bedford chapter of the Guardian Angels emphasising the practicality of martial arts in everyday life. But that's not all. Grandmaster Rebello is a tournament competitor, a promoter-producer of open tournament, and a noted martial arts historian frequently quoted in text and on the internet. His vast collection of martial arts books, magazines and videos make him a true connoisseur of the martial arts world. Now, here's the exciting part. This is the first-time three-part interview series. Join me in an enlightening and captivating journey as we delve in the extraordinary life and teachings of Grandmaster Joe Rubello. In his first instalment, we'll uncover the roots of his martial arts journey, explore the experiences as a tournament competitor, and gain insights into his role as a martial arts historian. This unique opportunity to learn from a true master promises to be an enriching as the martial arts itself. Stay tuned for release of part one of our conversation with Grandmaster Joe Rubello and join us on the special three-part series you don't want to miss. So welcome to the Mind Sensei podcast, 10th degree Grandmaster, Mr. Joe Rebello, officially known as Kempo Joe to a lot of people. The holder of 24 different black belts has his own cable TV cable network show is martial arts today tv so welcome to the show sir you've been on my list for a long long time to meet and talk to finally took a podcast to get us together so it's a wonder i think it's wonderful the mind sensei is a great concept and a great program 
And I'm glad to be, for lack of a better term, in its infancy. So I'm very honored by that. Thank yeah. you. It's in its infancy at the moment. The whole thing started with the passing of Sagun Labani. I actually recorded his last conversation telling his story we're going to release as a memorial podcast by the campfire in 2014 at Mr. Wedlake's camp. It was just a perfect moment in time. Yeah, you know, I'm that's why I think I tend to gel with you. You're the Kempo historian. I'm always sticking cameras and microphones in people's faces, recording everything. It all sort of came from that and after conversations with a lot of people I said, why aren't we doing this for all of us? Why is it taking an event to do that? So here we are on the Mind Sensei podcast recording history of all our Kempo seniors uh, and other martial arts, not just Kempo people. I'm expanding that past Kempo to all martial artists now. So here we are. So yeah, welcome again, Mr. Joe Ravello. Yeah, welcome to the show. And I'm very interested to hear your story. Uh, I have heard you before on uh, the Everyday Martial Artist. That's a great interview. Wow. Um, that's sort of drew me back pretty busy and running around everywhere with other people. So look, thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for mentioning the Everyday Martial Artist, you know. Um, I talked to the gentleman there and I happened to see his programming and I believe he's got over a hundred shows now that's involved in the, the radio industry and whatnot. I was involved in the radio industry at one point. You know, I was very happy and very grateful to be involved in that. I believe that is the 14th podcast that I've been featured on on the internet in some capacity. I'll take your word for that because you, you're pretty good with your memory. So for those who haven't heard the Everyday Martial Artist podcast, it's Pretty good. It's similar to the Mind Sensei podcast and run by Brian Doucette. And I think he's a bit more professional with his voice than I am. <laughs> I think he does it for a living somewhere else. Yes, exactly. Well, he's a, he's a graduate of the New England School of Broadcasting. Well, I'm a graduate. I'm a graduate of the New England School of Broadcasting, where you learn to properly enunciate and articulate, and you must pronounce each and every syllable. Let's kick it off with, tell us how you got started in the martial arts, what inspired you, and how did your journey begin? I was seven years old, and I was with my father, and we were doing father-son horseplay. And he suddenly hit me with a karate chop on the back of my neck and dropped me. Instead of crying, I looked up at my father and said, what was that? He goes, that's karate. I'm like, what's karate? Now, I should mention, I was born grossly pigeon-toed. My feet actually pointed in at a 90-degree angle. And originally I was in cast and then braces similar to the Forrest Gump analogy. And then, but eventually, you know, my feet, they had taken those off as a small child. And, but I still had, I would stand there with one foot pointing in at a 90 degree angle and the other foot pointing ahead and one foot behind the other. And that was comfortable for me. But because of that, I was, I did not run and play like the other children did. I gained weight. Children being children can be cruel and they would pick on me and they would bully me. So my father, at the time, he had studied with a gentleman by the name of Dave Schuster, who studied at the House of Oyama on Dartmouth Street in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And Dave Schuster had studied Shorokan and Kyokushinkai, and he was Masoyama's direct Northeast American representative for the Kyokushin system. He actually brought Oyama to New Bedford to do a demonstration. Unfortunately, at that time, they wouldn't teach children karate. They wouldn't teach women karate. Remember, this is a man who killed 52 bulls in his lifespan with his bare hands and punched a tree 500 times every day over the summer until that side of the tree died. So needless to say, this was kind of like a men's only club at that point. The only way that I could learn karate from my dad was an occasional lesson with him. You know, uh, this is this is, this is is a block, this is a, a punch, this is a nukate, which actually would serve me well in third grade where I'll never forget one day... Uh, James Parker, uh, I'm 
fortuitous as it were, was picking on me at Sarah D. Ottawell School. Somebody punches me in the back of my, my, my head and hits me in the brainstem. Suddenly my vision goes white. And I think this man has just driven me blind. So I so I automatically, nukate, straight out. Well, that goes up under his eyelid, over his eyeball, and touches the optic nerves in his eye to connect to his brain. And I watched that young man jerk his head back, rolling in the in the in the dirt, screaming. I'm nine years old. I just wanted him to stop hitting me. Obviously, this gets the attraction of all the teachers and brought the principal's office. And um, they call my mother and bring her in. And, oh, you know, and of course, when they were picking on me on a daily basis, you think anybody took the time to maybe help me out or assist me in any way, shape, or form? No. Your, your thing was basically gutted out. Well, I finally stood up for myself. And when they said to me, you know, what did you do to James? And I went, karate. And they were like, Joe Rebello knows karate? Now remember, I'm nine years old. This is 1968. This is the days of Inlake Flynn, James Bond, and the man from Uncle, and a Manchurian candidate. So karate's just starting to get known. Honey West TV series, which actually is, is was trained by one of my instructor's masters, uh, uh, Gordon Dovasola, and I work with a gentleman, Michael Pacina, right now on the Okinawa Taste System. But, but needless to say... You know, the little, little chubby pigeon toed Joey Rebello wasn't picked on for a little while. Of course, it never lasted until in 1974. I had a friend of mine, Eric Chevalier, and Eric uh, and I were in middle school together, and Eric was studying at United Studios of Self Defense. Now, Peter, this is the original chain of schools created by Fred Villari. He and Rudy Horn had left Nick Serio and started a series of franchise schools. I always say, you know, Ed Parker taught Kempo and the Tracy's franchised it. George Basari and Nick Serio taught Kempo in New England and Fred Villari franchised it on down from that lineage. So uh, he would tell me about his classes. And then uh, there was uh, an advertisement over the summer in my local newspaper, the Standard Times, and it showed this blonde, you couldn't see what color his hair was, but this person doing this high, hand height above his head, sidekick, and they put it like bookends with a, with a mirror image on each side, and it had, learn karate, $99 for three months of instruction. Get a free uniform, get a free patch, get a free bag to carry your uniform in. Huddleston Avenue in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Well, my mother was this poor, humble stitcher that originally came to this country as an x-ray technician, but unfortunately, Western or at least United States medicine would not recognize her certification from Puerto Rico, even though we were like New Bedford, or I should say Massachusetts, a commonwealth of the United States. So my mother did the next best thing, and she ended up working in our textile industry as a stitcher. So I bring this to my mother, and I say, I want to learn this. My mother looks, she figures maybe I'll only last a couple of months and then quit. So she's like, okay. So uh, I go to train with a gentleman, Fred E. Hosmer, who was known to most as Ed Hosmer. And I start to learn the art of Kenpo Karate. Now, back then with USSD, it was Kenpo with an N. And we would go to front position and we would bow to the American flag and we'd bow to Professor Chow. So was that your first Kenpo instructor? 
That was my first Kempo instructor. And I always say, I was just recently uh, inducted into the Kempo Karate Hall of Fame, and I was very proud and privileged and honored that Ed Hosmer could be there to see me being inducted. He now runs a transportation company out in Sedona. And uh, to have him there, and the greatest part of all was during my acceptance speech when I said, Mr. Hosmer, will you please stand up? And I said, this is the man that started me on Kempo. And the assembled multitude all gave him a round of applause. I know us. And I can't, I, that, those are the magical moments, Peter. That's when I can give back to the community. That's when I can give back to my instructors and say, I appreciate you and what you've done for me. And not just me, other martial artists in my area. And you have made me what I am. Because I always jokingly say, I said, Ed Hosmer, he had the flexibility of Jean-Claude Van Damme, the physique of Bruce Lee, and the hair of Robert Redford. I would watch girls from the local high school stop by and look in to watch Ed training bare-chested practicing in, in, in the studio. You know, and he, was just, he was just a great man and a, a great inspiration. You know, when you in a world where where people like Charles Barkley will say, I don't want to be a role model, Ed Hosmer was a role model. He was a guide. He was an inspiration. He was a mentor. How blessed I was to ever train with him. A lot of people I know in my coming through, there was not a lot of role models. There was a lot of people doing the wrong thing, you know, and yeah, one of the reasons I stuck it out was I was going to make sure this is a great art. We need to have more good people in it, you know. There you go. Words to live by. So um, I got up to the rank of Blue Belt, and Ed Hosmer left. Now, recently, I found the reasons and rationale why behind it, but we had other instructors come in from other USSD schools, but it just wasn't the same. You know, uh, another important thing he did, he was the one who enlightened me to start reading, reading martial arts magazines. Well, I didn't realize I had a photographic and photoidentic memory. I wouldn't just read them. I'd memorize them. So I'd be at the studio and these people would pick up, oh, yeah, yeah. and they pick a man. And I did, and they say, oh, yeah, well, fine. Let's see what he had. What's Bangua? I said, Bangua is one of the three internal Chinese martial arts. It is known as the eight trigram palm. It is uh, uh, the most popular. It was Master Tong, Yichuan, who had a famous duel with uh, a Xingyin master. They battled each other to uh, uh, stalemate for three days. And at the end of the third day on an island, they decided that each one would learn the other art. And off I go. I'm off to the races. And I just knew. I just knew what it was. Nice. Next time I have a question, I'll just ring you. A lot of people do, Peter. A lot of people do. A lot of people refer to me as a walking encyclopedia of martial arts. Some people just say Kempo history, but no, that the uh, other people say no, martial arts history. You asked Joe. Uh, Alan Goldberg gave a great phrase one day. He said, you know, when I want to know something about a particular martial art, I called Joe. And that was like one of the greatest compliments I could ever receive. Who's Alan Goldberg for us uneducated? Alan Goldberg, is, Alan Goldberg is the publisher of Action Martial Arts Magazine and the host and creator of the Action Martial Arts Mega Weekend located at the Tropicana in Atlantic City in New Jersey. It's been going on now for at least, I want to say, 23 years now. And... Um, it's really funny with Alan. I was at the uh, Rhode Island, uh, uh, the Ocean State Grand National Karate Championships uh, put on by Don Rodriguez, who was the coach of the uh, John Paul Mitchell National Karate Team, and Christine Banner Rodriguez, nine-time world champion, who, by the way, is a fascinating fact, 
Christine and I both tested for our second degree black belts in 1989 in front of Mr. Parker and one of the largest IKK boards ever put together in New England. Yeah, was that that you did your second with 1989. The- 1989. It was the year before Mr. Parker died. So what's your show called on YouTube again? Martial Arts Today TV. Is that your cable show as well? Same. Yes, that's my cable. Okay. Okay. All right. So yeah, is your- we're, we're out in Bedford. We're in nine major cable systems over a million households. And also YouTube exclusive extended episodes that go beyond the half hour format. What system are you currently studying at the moment? And now you're still studying uh, Kempo. <laughs> I'm studying right now. I'm learning uh, Gordon Devasola's Okinawa Te, and I'm working on that through Hanchi uh, Michael Pasina, who was one of his top students, if not his top student, uh, who trained with him for many years, did many demonstrations with him, uh, was featured on the cover of several martial arts magazines with him. He calls the system Te Kenpo Jiu-Jitsu because as he researched, he found that uh, Gordon Devasola worked a lot with James Matose when James Matose was living in California. Okinawa Te as Gordon Devasola is not the traditional Okinawa Te. It's really a blending of karate and kenpo and jujitsu and kung fu. It's really its own. And uh, the most famous practitioner is Jim Kelly and Joe Lewis. And you can always tell nice. because they have a pose called the crescent guard. And they're either here or the hand is low. And the moment you see them do that, you know they go. They studied with Gordon Devasola Okinawa Te. Okay. And you look at pictures of uh, look at pictures of Jim Kelly, and also footage from Enter the Dragon. There he is in the Okinawa Tapo. Look at pictures of Joe Lewis, and you're going to see either Joe here or here. And again, those are direct influences from Okinawa Tay. And for our viewers who are listening, basically the hand is either in a horizontal position, which Mr. Parker also liked to do, or they drop the hand like an inverted rolling hammer fist to the groin, and the back hands in a in a vertical thrust position. So those particular positions come directly from Okinawa Te and their training with Gordon Devasola, who at the time was one of the top fighters on the on the circuit for karate at that time. What was that again? Gordon, obviously his surname. Gordon Devasola. Can you spell that? Like D-E-R-S-O-L-A. Got it. Dover- got it. I can't write as fast as you're talking. That's all right. Like, That's good. All good. My my, my speech is like Kenpo. There's a great phrase Nakamura-sensei said in his book, Dynamic Karate. He had studied to be a Japanese spy in Manchuria, in China, for the Japanese government. And he learned Kenpo while he was out there. And at a seminar, and also in his book, they asked, what's the difference between karate and Kenpo? He said, karate is a cannon. Boom! Destroys everything. He said, Kenpo is a machine gun. It rips you apart. Nice. Tell us a little bit about your heritage and how you grew up. And are you a native to America? Were you born there or did you migrate across? No, nope. born and raised in New Bedford, Massachusetts. My mother was from Puerto Rico. Uh, as we say in Spanish, mi madre uh, inside of the um, uh, para uh, Aguadilla or Aguadilla, the Puerto Ricans would take uh, the double L or the Y sound, make it a J sound. And my me me abuelo, my grandmother, my grandmother was from a town called Isabella, which was known for the cookie or the little croaking frogs. Okay, but uh, yeah, also known for for its uh, uh rampant use of cockfighting. And uh, we're back to the rooster thing. Father was Portuguese. Uh, he was born in São Miguel in the Azores, uh, near um, Madeira, 
So he's familiar with all of that. My, my father was a big entrepreneur for the Portuguese community in New Bedford. He had, and I guess I got this from him, he had a radio program and a TV show called, uh, we had two. There was Portugal and America, and his competition, Tony Pasta, had one called Passport to Portugal. Very much involved in the Portuguese community. Um, he left my mom after meeting this wonderful Portuguese fado singer who he was with to the day he died, Valentina Felix, with a very famous... She was kind of like the Britney Spears of Fado in Portugal in, uh, in the 1960s. While they were advertising TAP or Portuguese National Airlines. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was uh, you know, she was quite the big deal. But that was, that's, but my mom was a Puerto Rican woman who uh, like a, um, I was born from and raised me my whole life. So blessed to have her as mom. Portuguese is its own language. Uh, I speak Polish Portuguese. I speak Portuguese. Not as well as I do Ablaza Espanol. I speak Spanish far better than I speak Portuguese. But again, because the way my mind works, the Latin base I hear, like for instance, if you wanted to say now in Spanish, it's Aora, A-H-O-R-A. In Portuguese, it's Agora with a G instead of an H sound. So, um, well, when you say that, I know you're talking about now, but in Greek, it's now time you're saying aorta right like now right yeah. exactly like it's now right yeah. here and here's the key yeah yeah you know here and now there's um it sounds a bit greek actually right again latin base yeah so i'll hear certain things and i'll go oh you mean here and now or you mean this i mean i'm really like wait, wait you speak that i said I speak Latin languages fluently enough to know Romance languages and the foundation of them. Yeah. Well, that's actually that's got a Greek base to it, the Latin base. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And one of the languages again, who conquered most of the Western world? Alexander. You know, when we look at that, and we talk about we look at Greek and we look at Italian. Like one day, I'm in I'm in North Boston, which is known for its Italian community, an old. Italian woman walks up to me, and again, you got to remember at the time I had like this fro going on, perm, and I looked like I looked like Mario. I had the big guy, and I didn't know what they what they definitely <laughs> call Guido kind of look. So she walks up to me, she asked me where the where the um, where the bakery is. So I knew what she was asking me because Latin based words for bakery and different things. So I mentioned, oh, Senora, uno dos so. And I think what the, what the Italian was, it was two streets up, to the right. And she goes, oh, grazie, walks up my friends and goes, you speak Italian too? I go, it's based on Latin. You listen to the language and listen to where it comes from. It's either it's either Greek, it's either Latin, or it's Slavic. For instance, we'll do one quick thing. Did you know, and that's my new phrase, for, did you know, European sailors first came to Japan. At the time in Europe, they considered bathing unhealthy. Think about it. You're you're taking a hot bath. You get out. You walk across a stone cold floor. You get under cold blankets. What happens? You catch cold. Right. That's why they made the old bed warmers with the handles that run between the sheets. So they're trying to explain to them that. They stink. They smell bad. So they're pointing to this fish. The Japanese word for stupid idiot is bakayaro. 
So the, the Portuguese sailors misinterpreting it thinks that the fish is called bacalhau or with a Portuguese accent, bacalhau. And to this day, in the Portuguese language, the Portuguese word for codfish is bacalhau, or the Japanese word for stupid idiot. I had okay. to tell that in a Portuguese restaurant to a bunch of Japanese with Portuguese all surrounding them out loud. The Japanese thought it was hilarious. The Portuguese, not so much. <laughs> Question about your first instructor, Fred Hosner. E. Hosner, Fred yep. E. Hosner. Yeah, definitely known as Ed. Yep. 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 Um, when did you first meet him? Like, what impressed you about him when you saw him? Like I said, he had uh, he had uh, had the good looks and uh, the hair of Robert Redford, and physique of Bruce Lee, the flexibility of Jean Claude Van Damme, and on top of that, he was also training with different people outside the Valari curriculum. He would go and work out. He and the whole thing, you know, we got around hitchhiking. He hitchhiked across the country. This guy, had a, I mean, it's amazing the stories he tells about hitchhiking across this country. And he'd hitchhike all the way down to Washington, D.C., and he'd go train with Jeff Smith. And he'd stay at Jeff Smith's apartment and work out with him. Or he'd go and train with Bill Superfoot Wallace and work out with him. And then he'd come back to Fairhaven. He'd come and teach us over the week, after the weekend, and here we were learning new stuff. And we'd be doing jump rope, and we'd be working drills on the bag and boxing drills on the bag and, you know, working – High degrees of flexibility. I mean, he was the one who gave me the guide to, to my my stretching ability. You know, I mean, I'm I'm 61 years old. I haven't stretched out as much as I used to because Mr. Parker's system doesn't tend to stretch out as much as other styles. But you know, I was able to maintain a lot of my flexibility for a very long time, many years. Okay. So I was very fortunate in regards to that. You obviously come up with other notable people when you've come through the system. So who did you train with after Fred Hosner? The studio, I, I left the studio as a blue belt. Right. I went to a place called European Health Spa, which is a popular series of health spas with a huge image of Atlas carrying the world of bronze in front of the place. And I met a gentleman by name of John Gabriel. And he was an old, um, he used to work on the radar systems on the old B-52 bombers in Taiwan. And when he was in Taiwan, he learned the art of Taekwondo in the military. And he met with his master, Cheng Lu, who also apparently was the son of the Korean ambassador to mainland China. Now, the family was Mandarins. They were they were affluent and whatnot, and they wanted to ingratiate themselves to the Korean community, so they had his, Chinese father had his son learn Korean calligraphy, and he learned under calligraphy by the name of Don Il. Now, Don Il was the person who also fought General Chung, or Choi Chong-hye, or they say Che or Choi. And uh, they both learned calligraphy together and also learned that uh, Don Il was also a master of Taekyong, Korean kicking techniques. Uh, so they learned that together. Then during World War II, when the Japanese took over China, they were able to escape back to Taiwan. But during the occupation, uh, again, uh, Lu's family also learned that only Japanese martial arts were allowed. So they learned Japanese Okinawan karate. And they learned the traditional katas from that. And then they emigrated to, uh, after they got back to mainland, they, through mainland China, after that came Mao. And when Mao wanted to create, bring communism to mainland China, they were like, see ya, we make money. We got money. You'll take all that away from it and share the wealth. No thanks, later. And they emigrated along with Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek to Formosa, which later became Taiwan. 
So because they were affluent, he would learn with these different Kung Fu masters as well. And he started incorporating this eight styles of Kung Fu along with his Taekwondo training and utilized the Taiwanese name Taekwondo. And that's what John Gabriel learned. So I was studying that with him. Then a great inspiration to me was a gentleman by the name of Jack Leonardo. And he was a man who brought Aikido to New Bedford. And I would go visit him at his dojo. And he was very old school. You couldn't get joined right away. You had to come several visits and show that you were really sincere. And uh, I really wasn't that interested in Aikido. But what I was interested in was the weapon arts of Aikido, which eventually he did teach me separately, which is Aiki Ken and Aikido, the art of the Japanese sword and the short Japanese staff or walking stick. So I was learning that with him. Then I found out they were teaching Kung Fu at my local university, SMU, Southeastern Massachusetts University. So I went there and lo and behold, no less than the actual Wu-Tang Clan. The actual Wu-Tang lineage of Taiwan from Grandmaster Liu Yanqiao, one of the 10 Tigers of Taiwan, which were taught originally by a gentleman by the name of Jason Zimmel, who is a very famous Wu-Tang instructor. He was just at the uh, National Karate Championships along with Tony Yang and several of the other Wu-Tang masters. I was learning with his eighth chosen disciple, Ed Jada, who originally didn't want to teach me. I come mm-hmm. in there and says, oh, studying the martial arts. Oh, yeah, I'm doing Kenpo and I do Taekwondo and I'm studying Ikea. Oh, then we can't teach you. Huh? He says, my instructor says it'll poison the Kung Fu. I said, with all due respect, I expected hearing that from some Oriental, not some blonde-haired, blue-eyed white guy. But he was adamant. (laughs) So I started to go every week. I would show up and I would sit on the bleachers and watch them train. Well, about three weeks in, Peter, one day I go there. And there's nobody else there except the instructor. And he's just sitting there looking kind of dejected. And I go, look, here you are. And the college kids won't come train with you. But here I am. I take two buses to get here. I come all the way and walk all the way to the gym. I sit down in the bleachers and I really want to learn. What's that tell you? And he goes, you know what? You're right. I'll teach you. So I started to learn Northern Praying Mantis Kung Fu, which was a six harmony, seven star, and eight step systems of Praying Mantis, and also Long Fist Mantis as well. Um, at one point, my instructor, unfortunately, he's a postal worker, comes back, doesn't feel that right. One day, he's laying in his bath, I don't feel right. Goes to the hospital, goes, yeah, there's a good reason. One of your lungs collapsed. So he was out of it for a little while. And I would go visit other martial arts studios in Chinatown around the area while I was waiting for him to recover. Once he got back, and also uh, I was also competing occasionally in different tournaments, I actually lost my first 12 tournaments. And finally, in the 13th one at a little event in New Bedford, Mass., right here in my hometown, I uh, placed in a sparring division and in forms in Brown Belt Division. And I had enough points to go to the AU Nationals in Barnstable, Mass., in 1981. At the time when my instructor came back, he was like, okay, you know, I think I haven't been doing enough internal arts. That's why I had the injury. Everybody's required now to learn Tai Chi. And I'm like, oh, man, the old people's art. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Best thing in the world he ever did for me, Peter. Because to this day, I teach Tai Chi at no less than five different locations all throughout the southeastern Massachusetts area. So thank God for him teaching me Tai Chi. So I'm learning with all these individuals. What year was that that you started Tai Chi? Oh, 1981. 1981. 
So you started. I started with him in Kung Fu in '79. So what about the Aikido? When did you? So that was Jack Leonardo. Um, around the same time, 1979, okay. 1980. So you, at the same time, you're studying Kung Fu, right? Yeah. So I'm studying Northern Mantis Kung Fu. I'm studying Aiki Ken and Aiki Joe. I'm studying Taekwondo and Taichuan Dao. And um, I meet up with my old assistant instructor from USSD, Jim Gadman. And he says, hey, um, you know, Joe, how you doing? Oh, Jim, so great to see you, man. He goes, um, hey, um, I'm teaching privately out of my home. Oh, I should, well, I got to preface it before something else. No, we got to talk about a very important person, two very important people. I'm looking in my local newspaper and I see in the classified a small ad. Um, looking for serious students who want to learn Chinese martial arts. Call this phone number. I'm like, wow, okay, let's dial this, boom, boom, boom. And I talked to a gentleman by the name of Leo Lasser. And Leo and a compatriot of his, Chris, were teaching Southern style Kung Fu in the basement of Leo's home on Hick Street, which was a kind of rough and seedy area. We had a local motorcycle club right up the street with their headquarters. It was kind of a rough neighborhood, but I didn't care. I just wanted to learn. Yeah. So I went to go train with him and I found out they had done these high, two hybrid systems get Kung Fu. And then, um, I was like, you know, okay, you know, I was on train. And they're like, okay, we're going to do this kata. And they're doing that hanchi. And I'm like, the hanchi's not a Chinese form. It's an Okinawan form. What are you talking about? And they're going over various self-defense techniques and whatnot. And I'm going, okay, this isn't what it's supposed to be, but I'll learn it anyway. So we're going through all this. And while I'm doing all this and learning all these arts, by the way, Peter, simultaneously, five days a week, sometimes six. I see Jim Gagnon, the assistant instructor. So I talk to him, oh, I'm teaching out of my basement. And I'm like, oh, so I start training with him there as well. Well, things didn't work out with Chris and, and, and Leo. They parted ways for one reason or another and whatnot. I see Leo and, you know, going over stuff and we would exchange videotapes and magazines and I was collecting them, you know, like a hoarder. I uh, just, you know. So uh, he says to me, um, I said, hey, I got an old friend of mine, Jim Gagnon, doing Kempo. And for some reason, Leo had studied some really obscure kind of stories that really didn't really jive with traditional. And I knew that. And I said, look, his guy is legitimate with Lou Kempo and, you know, check it out. So they meet up. They're both Vietnam vets. They were both in the same area of Vietnam at the same time in Nam. They just never met. So they get along famously. So now Leo's all interested. Now he's learning Kempo, which again, that system of Kempo is baseball like Kaju Kempo and uh, Victor Sunny Gascon system of Kata Zempo Goshen Jutsu. So that's the orientation. The forms are different. The techniques are different. The style's different. So he starts learning that. And eventually, Leo, myself, another guy, Ron Valier, all test for our black belts in January of 1981. I already had my black belt in Taekwondo and Taichuan Dao prior to that. And... um was learning Kung Fu and learning all these different systems. And uh, so here's where everything changes, Peter. Right. Let's purchase that. Let's go back a little bit. So let's talk about the first American Kempo instructor I got to work with besides Mr. Parker. I asked Mr. Parker, I sat down with him and I said, look, Mr. Parker, with all due respect to everyone in New England, I respect them, but they don't know your system. They're just learning just like me. 
they're they're reading out of out of the cumulative journal and whenever they can work with you. So um, who do I work with on the East Coast for American Kempo? Without a moment's hesitation, he says Joe Palanzo. So with the blessing of the backers, I go to Spikesville, Maryland, to meet with Joe Palanzo, and I tell him, "Look, we're doing completely different." You know, so he says, "Okay." Now, at the time, there's a local video store in the same plaza as his basement studio, which is still there to this day, I believe. It's not as that studio since left, but we like the many years. You ever watch any of the videos from the 1980s? You'll see it's at Joe Palanzo's studio, basement studio, and not Pikesville. They had a video store upstairs, so I rent out a video camera and a video recorder so I can watch it as well. So I go train with him. We're recording it on video, et cetera. Great. I bring it to my hotel room. I walk away from the desk for 30 seconds. I come back. Somebody had stolen the recorder. <laughs> I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? 30 seconds. Now, back then, they didn't have a, a camera at the front desk. So I couldn't see who the hell walked off with it. Again, 1985. So I'm like, great. So I think what material I got, go over it, write it down, bring it back to teach it, work on it. So um, then we find out about what I decoratively call the Chicago Conclave, which was uh, Lee Wedlake's uh, event held at Oak Lawn, Illinois in 1985. Now, remember, Pete, we're in the process of opening this school. We haven't opened it yet. We're trying to get as much material so we can actively teach as an American Kenpo studio. We, I would have loved to have been at Ed Parker's franchise. Lord knows I tried, but that was not to be, so we take the next best thing. So we're looking through Big Red, and we're intelligent guys, and we go, Mr. Parker, where's the basics? We're looking at the paperwork. We got the techniques. We got the sets. We got the forms. Where the heck are the basics? We want to teach it the way you're doing it. Exactly as you're doing it. So this way, when you come into our studios, you know that we're doing what you're doing. So the seminars are going on. And at one point, Mr. Park looks at me and looks at Leo, says, follow me outside. And Pete, it felt like the Kempo version of let's make a drug deal. Because <laughs> he brings us out. Inside his jacket, he pulls out these folded papers. And Peter, what those papers were, were the Ed Parker franchise requirement charts for yellow, orange, purple, blue, green, brown. I don't think he gave us black at that time because the basic stopped before black. He says, I'm passing these along to both for you. You are not to give this to anyone else under any circumstance. Do you understand? Oh, yes, sir. But we had the basics. So now we go back to New Bedford. We opened the studio of August of that year. Sorry, is that in 1985? No. 85. We get back and we've got the basics and whatnot. But um, I'm working with Leo. Oh, I'm, I'm working with Leo, going over this material and whatnot. And the owners sit there and say to me, "Look, we need more instructors. 
Joe, we can't depend on you taking all the workload. So I bring in Leo. Now, but, but let me explain. So before this, Leo had a bad encounter about opening a school and he wasn't able to, and he's very upset and he's kind of downtrodden and kind of down on himself. So I contact him with Leo. I'm going to open up a Kimball Karate School. I want you to be part of it. And then, yeah. I literally decided to just about drag Leo to this location on Church Street. And when he looks and he sees and the sign and everything, he's like, Joe, you're really going to do this. Yeah, Leo, I want you to be part of it. Wow, okay. He says, look, you know, they're looking for another instructor. And he mentions, look, I want to bring in Steve Arsenal. I knew Steve Arsenal. Steve and I had gone to high school together. At one point, the uh, instructors decided to go with uh, Steve and with Leo. So I was kind of basically kicked to the curb three weeks before Christmas with my wife nine months pregnant. Great timing. Joe Palanzo had brought come in later that year to do a seminar. And I went to seminar. I'm this happy-go-lucky me. And uh, Joe sits there and writes in the thing, you know, best of luck to you, Joe. Don't quit. And you know what, Pete? I really, I thought was in the right place, but to me, it was real slap in the face. Because I had no intention of quitting. I loved Ed Parker's Kempo. I loved Ed Parker. He was a great man. One of the nicest people I could ever hope to meet. So guess what? I kept doing Kempo. I kept following Mr. Parker to different seminars. And I went back to go train with the powers that be in New England at that time. And you eat some humble pie and you do what you got to do as long as I get to work with Ed Parker. So for the us uh, ignorant people and mainly talking about myself, where is New Bedford in the state of Massachusetts, right? It's the way I always describe it, Peter, and you'll love the imagery. So Cape Cod is like somebody curling their bicep in a bicep pose. We're in the armpit. New Bedford is the number one fishing port in America, commercial fishing port in America, because it leads to the open sea. It, it's also where Herman Melville, as a young student of whaling, wrote the book Moby Dick. And, and also the uh, subsequent book to Sea and Ship. It's also, as I mentioned earlier, has the largest contingent of Portuguese in America. So what's with Pope's Island? Does he own that, does he? <laughs> oh, no, Pope's Island is just a reference. You know, boy, that's a really good question. Yeah, I was on Pope's Island for a while. Yeah, I had a commercial studio there. Um, it took a while. I, um, you know, I was just teaching privately. And I kept learning. I wanted to learn from Mr. Parker, you know? So I, I, I give my little card and follow him all over the place and take notes, write things down, and I go back and I videotape myself. And, oh, man, I wanted to learn. There's a funny story. We're talking about the basics, right? Leo and I are talking back in 85 at the studio. And he goes, oh, yeah, so we'll teach it this way and that. And we'll just wait. Palm up and by. No, 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 no. I said, I had the infinite insights. And I watched Frank Trejo, inward parry, outward parry, triangular position. It's supposed to be this, Leo. I had studied Wing Chun. So I knew center line, anchored elbow, triangulation from the shoulders. I said, if we're doing an inward hand sword and an outward hand sword, we're anchoring our elbow and triangulating right there. Leo's arguing the point. Fine. I call it Barker. Who I, I, if I'm not, if the story goes correctly, he's teaching a person, I believe, the Jeff Speakman at the time when I call. So I said, Mr. Parker, I just need to clarify a point. Mr. Lassert wants to teach you palm up and palm down. And I realize we have those in the techniques and certain techniques, but from delayed sword on up, don't we anchor our elbow to triangulate our base and to ensure it's like a kind of like Aikido's unbendable arm, isn't it? 
Mr. Rebello, you're exactly right. If you want to anchor your elbow and try and utilize a rotational torque. And I was like, I'm sure, I'm sure when he heard Joe Rebello asking him, how do you do a hand? So he kind of went, really? But then when I explained it to him logically and rationally and intelligently, he appreciated it and went into detail regarding it. The inward hand sword and the outward hand sword, exact the same place and the anchored elbow. So he gets off the phone. I want to say it was Jeff. I want to say it was Jeff speaking when he was doing the private lesson. Was, you know, I got to tell you, these guys in New England, they want to make sure they're doing it exactly the way I want it taught. Many years later, I want to say it was Jeff that told me the story. And he told, told me, he said, so, so, so you were the hand sword guy, huh? You interrupted my lesson. <laughs> I was like, how was that? How was that guy? But it's so integral to our system that if you're going to teach one of the foundation basics, you better get it right. Well, every, every block is a strike and every strike is a block. We don't, strike is a block. Right? We don't, we don't re reduce design, do we? Yep. B1EH, oh my gosh, I'm quoting a temple freestyle technique. People's ears are burning. I'm, I'm working on that right now, but I'm detailing them out ad infinitum, ad nauseum, because I want I don't want to die. So many people do not know the freestyle techniques. Yeah. Our legacies of Kempa. When I asked the question about a lot of it, a lot of people did not know it. I went out to find it. What I found is they're like everything. They're like the other techniques. They're an example of what to do. Because when you're freestyling, you can't stick to a set pattern. Otherwise, you're a dead duck, right? B1, you know, baby, B1A and B1B yeah. work. Yeah. I had a yeah. white belt kid. He was morbidly obese. He was a big, just chubby, fat kid that was training at my studio. And he wanted to enter a tournament right literally across the street at New Bedford Vogue Tech, an AU tournament. And I taught him B1AH and B1B, sorry, B1A and B1B, and KB1A and KB1A, and then B2A and B2B. We get to the event, and white belt, first tournament ever, squares off. Guy comes in range, B1A, wham! Warning, grab, I went, whoa, whoa, whoa. I went, excuse me, sir, this is an AAU tournament. We are working on Japanese karate rules. They clearly stated at the rules meeting that we could grab and hold on for one second, immediately followed by a strike, kick, and or takedown. You're absolutely right. Point. He wins the division. First place. B1A, B1B, K, B1A, K, B1B. Stuff works. Oh, and by the way, who did Ed Parker create those techniques with? Awesome oh, young Chinese kid that he was watching work that moved pretty fast. You know, Bruce Lee. And if you don't believe me, watch the classic fight scene with Bruce Lee versus Chuck Norris in Return of the Dragon. And you will see B1AH, TSK, not TSKRK, follows it with a high roundhouse kick. But guess what? TSKRK, we're there, folks. Our Kenpo freestyle techniques are in that famous fight scene. I'll have to go and watch it now. And they are us. Yeah, I even show it to my student. I said, look, there it is right in front of us. B1AH, what does Mr. Parker talk about? Complete the phrase. Sequential flow. Ed Parker taught us B1AH. And the cool thing was I could go A, go back to B1AH, B1AH, B1AH. And what does Bruce Lee do to Chuck Norris at one point? B1AH, B1AH, B1AH. Several times. Yeah. We call that in tempo confirmation of the fact. Yeah. 
I had a friend of mine that I came through with, Nolly, he's my Habibi brother. He won a tournament, I think I think it was a red belt from memory, because we had a red in between yellow and orange. It's a pretty cool belt. You learned you learn nunchucks, which is cool. And he entered a tournament, it was a hard style karate tournament, and so he was competing against black belts as a red belt. And all he was doing is we used to do in the Tracy system you used to do you know, like the leopard leopard movement, right? Closing gap. So step drag, high back fist, low reverse hand. And all he did the was Lewis staple, the Kempo Blitz. Yeah. Exactly. All all he did was repeat it when it didn't work. Right. You didn't get it once, you just kept repeating it just like you did then. Ah. But um yep. not one of them could stop it. And he ended up blitzing all the black belts and they disqualified him because they didn't want him to win because he kept ah. repeating he kept repeating the same move. So yeah. Hey, if it works, do it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that becomes our staple, right? Kempo is known for what? The blitz. You ever get a chance to pick up a, a copy from mastersmag.com of the spring 2023 issue of Masters Magazine and get it, Peter, in the PDF format that comes with an additional video. And make sure I'll contact Val Majelovic and make sure what. So you use Pal out there? What's your main? Uh, yeah, video Pal. System? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pal. Make sure you can get it in Pal. He does all the international formats. So get it in Pal. In the uh, magazine, you'll find a four-page article I did on what makes it Kenpo. Not just Mr. Parker's system, but what identifies Kenpo as a as a system. And of course, one of them is Uraken, as the Japanese would call it, or the back fist. Another one is Tetsui, the hammer fist. If you're doing those movements, guess what? You're doing Kempo. Yeah. And we talked about that. And then on the video, I do a 20-minute segment on uh, uh, poison hand strikes, iron fist and poison hand strikes that are in Kempo. And uh, it's very educational. I got Mr. Parker to go over them with me and demonstrate them on me. But I was always picking his brain, always getting confirmation to the back. So finally in 1989... I'd gotten my first degree black belt certified through the IKK and got the small certificate. And then in 1989, I was able to test for my second degree black belt in front of Mr. Parker. And by the way, like I said, the largest panel of, of black belt judges at that point in the history of the IKK in New England were over 23 black belts on the judging panel. So who did you get your black belt, your first degree from? Uh, Jim Gagman. All right. Jim Gagnon, USSD, that was in the uh, Karazempo Goshen Jitsu based system of Kempo Karate. Okay. So you, so you, we went, you, went, you went from that to Ed Parker's Kempo, right? You bet. Okay. Yeah. And like I said, meow, completely different. Like Peanut the Wolves of Jeff Dunn, meow. It's completely over my head when I landed it. Wow. But I knew Kung Fu. So when we're doing double parries, oh, I did, I had done that. You know, uh, when we were learning, you know, rear crossovers and front crossover and the twist stance, a twisted horse, dragon stance. Knew that from Northern Frame Mantis Kung Fu. And, you know, I was like, so constantly getting confirmation of the fact of the Chinese influence. Tell us about your black belt grading. And um, was it your hardest grading or what was your hardest grading? Okay, so here's another funny story. So... It said Parker. Again, Ed Kelohas Parker. And I'm worried. I had never tested in front of Ed Parker. I was used to the old school hazing 
stuff where they put you against the wall and made off they were throwing shurikens at you or made you do push-ups till the cows came home. Even my black belt test, my original first degree black belt test was amusing. It was eight hours long. And besides the physical requirements of doing the performance of the material itself, my instructor played some head games. So in one instance, one guy, we three of us were testing. Ron Lazat was six foot five. He's a big, like, big dude. So he had, had made arrangements that at one point, and again, our thing was to stand up against the wall so we couldn't see what was going on. He had made a deal with Ron to mess with our heads that when they were going to do the Randori judo section, Ron was to almost immediately fall to the ground. Once you fell to the ground, you were out. You were done on that segment. You failed that segment. So we're sitting there, one, two, boom! Wow, he took Ron down that fast? And I'm thinking to myself, okay, Ron's much taller than him. Jim's got a lower center of gravity. Yeah, that's not unheard of. Okay. So then it's Leo's turn. Leo does it last a minute. And there was no segue. Jim got him. You know, boom, dumps him into judo throw, dumps him. And I'm thinking to myself, there is no way that that guy is going to take me down. Because I've studied Aikido. And I've studied other grappling arts. You ain't getting me on the ground. So we square off with each other. Every time he moves, push the hip, push the shoulder, push. And every time I do it, no, no. Minute goes by, time's up. He doesn't throw me. Other test, pulls out an egg, takes some testers from local companies here in America, gold paint, pours it on the side of the egg. Now, I had listened to Ron. I had listened to Leo. Their test was to strike that egg and not break it, but get gold on your finger. So Ron tries it with like a knife hand, bang, breaks the thing, shatters. Leo tries it with an immortal master, bang, shatters. Comes up to me, pours the egg, holds it up to me to see, Pete. And what do I do, Peter? Bing, ding dong, Avon calling. And I push it like a doorbell. I said, if I'm poking somebody in the eye, how hard do I really have to hit? And he goes, exactly. Those are the kind of things that that test dealt with. So with all due respect, eight hours, man, I, it's, it's Ed Parker. So I'm worried. So I have a mutual friend of mine from the old USSD days, gentleman man, Al Cunningham. Later on, he would go on to create an organization called NIKIK, New England Karate Instructors of Chinese Kempo. Friend of mine is also from the old USSD days. Mark Capolito got very much involved. Uh, I met another gentleman, Skip uh, Ellis, years later, and had him get involved with the organization as well. But anyway, he's, he's got a black belt test coming up. And I go, look, Al, I'm worried. And Al had also joined the IKK at that point as well. It was really funny. It was one analogy that I'll never forget. He was like, hey, I want to learn 4-4. Have you learned short one yet? No, no, I just want to learn 4-4. And like, Al, there's, there's an order to learn the forms. It builds up a logical progression and how things work and whatnot. No, 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 just teach me form four. So I go to this test. It was a wonderful test. He was running on material. I knew the material. I was already a black belt in that style already. We get to sparring, and I'll never forget it. Yeah, I'd learned from Mr. Parker about moving in a circle, moving to a stronger way. Hey, long story short, I, I'm, I'm moving these people around like nobody's problem. No problem. Dodging, parrying, pushing one into the other, spinning around like one. Wow. So at the end of the test, he goes, Joe, you just really need to work on your kicks. And when I'm like going, we do Kempo kicking. What are you talking about? I don't want a certificate. I said, I just came here just for the workout. 
I don't, I'm not looking for promotion from you. I just want to make sure I can hang when I test in front of Ed Parker. Well, I make a critical mistake. I told my instructor I did this. He tries to get me kicked out of the eye kick. Hey, I have to call Ed Parker. I explained the situation. I said, Mr. Parker, with all due respect, you're Ed Parker. You're the father of American karate. I've never tested before you a day in my life. I don't know if I can hang. I don't know what I have. I look at the I look at the black belt magazines and I have pictures of people drenched with sweat kneeling in Pasadena before you in West Los Angeles. And I'm like going, do I have what it takes? Can I hang with a test with Ed Parker? Sir, if you want me to go back to white belt, I'll go back to white belt as long as I can work with you. That's all that matters. As long as I can train and study with you. It's also important to me. Well, Joe, you don't have to do that, you know, but you know, I do, I'm a real stickler on this. And I said, I understand, sir, sir, I did not receive any certificate. I was not testing for any rank there. I just took the test. I just make sure I could hang, just hang with a black belt test. That was a little different. That's all. So I go to test and um, I'm working with this one kid and he had a neck problem and I'm trying to work him. He keeps backing away. And I just finally went, screw it. Bang! I light him up like a Christmas tree. I had Parker him. And Mr. Parker gets this huge smile on his face because I suddenly moved spontaneously and creatively using his system. So at the end of the test, we're all standing up in line. Mr. Parker is, bows us out, starts to walk away. And I'm standing in my voice stance. I go, Mr. Parker! No kick? Mr. Parker, I've waited my entire life to receive the kick of pain. I want that rebirth. I want that being kicked into my black belt. I've waited my whole life for this moment, sir. With all due respect to you, I want my kick. And he gets this smile on his face. And he walks up and he sets. Boom! I get kicked. I'm happy as a clam. Suddenly, the other 22 black belts on that board realize they all get to kick me. And anyone else is going to be kicked. Now realize, out of that test, Peter, I would say one quarter of the people testing at that time were doing it Parker's Kempo. Uh, to this day, I always commend Christine Banner Rodriguez, because she made a point of demonstrating techniques that Mr. Parker taught to show him that they were making an active effort to learn their, his system. A lot of people weren't. A lot of people were just rolling in to get another stripe on whatever they did, whatever their style of Kempo was, and to just get an Ed Parker certificate. Was it really fair to the people that were actually doing the system? No. But Mr. Parker was taking everybody in. And he was just about he was just about getting to the point where he's going, okay, this stuff's got to stop. We've got to test exclusively people who do Red Parker's Kempo, and people have got to make an active effort to want to learn my system. You got people like Joe Rebello sitting there, and he's making everything he can do to demonstrate our system. And then I get other people who are doing other styles of Kempo and thinking that they're getting the same certificate and it's the same thing. It's not. 
But unfortunately, a year later, he died. I was very fortunate in 1990. And if you are a fan of eBay, you will see somewhere an Ed Parker Nunchaku seminar, which was filmed in East Greenwich, Connecticut, where Mr. Parker is demonstrating on me. What I'll do for you, Peter, is I will show you a memento. And that memento is a pair of red foam rubber nunchakus. And if you get that particular seminar, by the way, it's horrible. I'm going to be re I'm going to be putting it out crystal clear, first generation copy because this person I know, Steve, I mentioned his name. You know, he's been putting out top third generation copies that look like crap, and that really upsets me. Um, and he was never at the seminar. He was never there. He's just offering it because it's stuck in the awkward. Center. I understand that. But anyway, at one point, Mr. Parker is demonstrating on me. And what a on my face. And he breaks the nunchaku on my face. And in that video, you're going to see Mr. Parker talking to a small child. And he's leaning over. And what that little child's going, Mr. Parker, you're hitting him really hard. He goes, oh, no, no, no. He's an actor. He's just going... Yeah, acting. I was acting because what happened was when he hit me, he literally broke a piece of the inside plastic off on my face. And I have that broken nunchaku to this day. Never forgetting how Ed Parker, once again, the feel is to believe, Pete. As we draw the curtains on his first installment of the Mind Sensei podcast, featuring Grandmaster Joe Rubello, I hope you found inspiration and wisdom in the extraordinary journey we've explored today. Grandmaster Rubello's insights into martial arts, coupled with his vast experience and knowledge, have undoubtedly left us hungry for more. But fear not, dear listeners, because this is just the beginning in this three-part interview series where Grandmaster Rubello has much more in store with just scratched the surface delving into the roots of his martial arts journey and tournament experiences in part one. However, there's so much more to explore. Make sure you don't miss out on the upcoming episodes where we'll continue our deep dive into the life and teachings of Grandmaster Joe Ribello. In part two, we'll unravel the layers of his role as a martial arts historian and his profound impact on the martial arts community. And in part three, we'll explore the future of martial arts through the lens of this living legend. Stay tuned, mark your calendars, and be ready for more riveting conversations. Grandmaster Joe Ribello's wisdom is an invaluable treasure, and we can't wait to share the remaining chapters of this special three-part series with you. Don't miss out on the next two episodes. They promise to be enlightening and captivating as the first. Until then, keep the martial arts spirit alive, and thank you for joining us on this incredible journey with Grandmaster Joe Ribello on the Mindset 8 podcast. Thank you for tuning in and we look forward to having you back for the next installment on the Mindset Say podcast. Stay inspired, stay connected and stay ready for the next chapter in this extraordinary life of Master Joe Ribello. For more information on Master Joe Ribello, he can be contacted on Instagram on KempoJoe underscore Rebello, also at his website on www.kenpojoe.com, 
Also on Twitter at KempoJoe underscore Rebello. Facebook page joe.rebello.39. Be contacted on his email at kempojoe at aol.com and also on his YouTube channel at kempojoe1. It's also available for lessons at his studio location in New Bedford at Rebello's Kempo Karate, 88 Hatch Street, Suite 312, New Bedford, Massachusetts, 02745. Phone number plus one seven seven four three six zero four one one six, or you can read the links in our show notes. I'm your host Peter Taz, and you've tuned in to the Mind Sensei podcast from Down Under. We want to take a moment to thank all our listeners for tuning in to the Mind Sensei podcast. We appreciate your support and hope our show has been both informative and entertaining for you. If you haven't already done so, we would like to invite you to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. By subscribing, you'll be the first to know when we release new content and you'll have access to all of our past episodes. We also encourage you to visit our website at mindsensei.au where you can find additional resources related to martial arts. On our site, you can read blog posts, videos, and learn more about the guests we feature on our show. Finally, we'd like to thank our guests for sharing their knowledge and experience with us. Without their generosity, this podcast would not be possible. Thank you again for listening to the Mind Sensei podcast down under. We hope that you continue to join us on this journey through the world of martial arts.